Welcome to the NC4 Podcast. We exist to know Christ and make Him known. Discover the power of a connected life by listening to this message from God's Word. I remember when I was 12 years old and I fell in love with hip-hop. And the young people said, yeah, and the old people said, ha, 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 yeah. So I was introduced to hip-hop at that age and to Christian artists and non-Christian artists kind of at the same time, and I just loved the style, I loved the wordplay, I loved the whole culture, and immediately I started making, making my own beats, making my own songs, writing my own lyrics, and I performed for the very first time at that age at Christmas, and that's now in a sealed vault in Switzerland. But don't go looking for it, guys. All right? So I remember showing one of my early songs to someone from our church, and we were on a car ride, and he had the headphones on, and he listens to it, and he looked like he was enjoying it, and he took the headphones off. He says, wow, Ian, that's pretty good. It's a shame it's of the devil. And I said, you know, I kind of caught my breath. I'm like, what What do you mean? And he says, well, you know, hip-hop started on the streets with drug dealers and criminals, and so it's, it's demonic. Now, obviously, I didn't buy what he said. I, I, I knew there was something off with that. Otherwise, I wouldn't still be doing it. But the question is, okay, if he was wrong, that's a, that's a, a common logic. You hear a lot. I've heard very many times since then. And I had this feeling that he was wrong, but if he was wrong, well, what exactly made it wrong? And so it's kind of what I want to get into this morning in our message called the controversy of Christmas, the controversy of Christmas. What does the incarnation have to say to this? So we're going to look at the intersection of Christmas, Christianity, and culture. And what we're going to see is that Christmas at its core is fundamentally controversial because it transforms how God's people interact with culture. So we're going to read, picking up where we left off last week, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. And we're going to read from 11 to the end of the chapter. So turn on your Bibles and you can follow along on the screen if you'd like to. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, so Paul is, he's in, in the first half, he was looking at the covenant people, the Jewish perspective. Well, here he's looking from the Gentile perspective, everybody else. <clears throat> you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. 
by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he who came and preached peace to you who were once far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him... You also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So, we talked in the first message in this series about the three-part drama of salvation. And when we first looked at that, it was from the perspective of God's covenant people. But right at the start of that story in Act 1, when God called Abram, he told him, he promised him that through him, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. But right after that, the the story begins to focus on Abraham's descendants and, and the people that became Israel. And so you begin to think, well, what happened to everybody else? The, the story of the nations at that point kind of fades into the background and they really only start to turn up in the story as antagonists to the people of Israel. You, you have these like little cutaway scenes like the book of Ruth and, 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 and other places where you see Gentile peoples and their story. But here, Paul is kind of giving us the, the, the Star Wars prequel spinoff of what happened to these people while all this other stuff was going on. He said, well, what was happening was the nations were far off. They were cut off from God. And so... As that story progressed through the centuries, the divide between the nations and God's people grew bigger and bigger and bigger. The the, the enmity grew deeper and deeper and deeper until we get to Act 2 in the opening of the New Testament and we see that it could have hardly been a bigger divide. And that divide between peoples was symbolized nowhere more than in the temple wall that divided between the court of the Gentiles and the court the inner courts where only the Jews could access God, could draw near to God's presence and worship. And so it was a physical wall. This was the wall that you can tell how seriously people took this because when Paul took Timothy to Jerusalem, they wanted to kill him because they thought that this, he was taking a Gentile past the wall. Now, the Gentiles were cut off. They were not welcome And in case they forgot, there were helpful helpful signs all along the wall that said, it didn't just say, you know, trespassers will be prosecuted. It said trespassers will be executed. And so there was this physical and, and constant reminder that these peoples were separate and they were intended to be separate. But Paul's telling us in this passage that that physical wall in the temple, it was really a symbol of a much deeper spiritual divide. And so the way we can sum this up is that the temple wall symbolized division between sacred and secular. Every single aspect of life 
from food to clothing to sexual ethics to work to where they lived was designed in the life of Israel to emphasize their separateness, their distinctiveness. And so all, there's a huge chunk of, of the, the Torah that's dedicated to all the things that, that would help them do that, and it was called the ceremonial law. It was codified into the ceremonial law, and the, the point of that section of the law was to create cultural distinctiveness, that the people of Israel would have a separate and distinct and holy culture set apart for God. But Paul's saying the incarnation turned all of that on its head. And it turned it on its head in a way that was shocking both for Gentiles and for Jews. And here's what he says. We, we read it just now. Paul says, in Jesus, that dividing wall between sacred and secular has been torn down. And you can picture, you know, if you've seen the videos of the, the tearing down of the, the Berlin Wall in 1989, a symbol of division between two opposing ideologies. Well, this is something similar, but much greater. The wall between sacred and secular being torn down. And Paul says that he's done it in his flesh. He's done it by the fact of his incarnation. Well, how? Well, it wasn't, Jesus wasn't biracial. He wasn't kind of like multicultural. In a, he does have these, these certain episodes with Gentile people, and he, he goes into Syria for a little bit. But, but Jesus says that his ministry even was focused first on the sons of Israel, on, on, on the, the Jewish people. And so the way that Paul says the wall was torn down, it wasn't through those things. He says he abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. And this is one of those points where people say, see, the Bible just contradicts itself because Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law, right? But Jesus did say, I've not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And what you see is Jesus isn't saying that he's, he's done away with the moral law and neither is Paul. When you look at it in context, what they're talking about is not the moral law. The moral law is an expression of God's character. That's true for all time. What he's talking about is the ceremonial law that was a hedge around the culture, the nation of Israel that was designed to make it and separate it as sacred from the nations. And so Jesus fulfilled the ceremonial law. He fulfilled all the law, actually, at all the requirements of the law, but he fulfilled the ceremonial law. And now that the Messiah has come, Paul says, that ceremonial law, it's been accomplished, it's been fulfilled, and it's been abolished as a part of the way of salvation. He abolished the, the, the law expressed in ordinances. And so the result is this good news, good news for the vast majority of us who are Gentile in terms of ethnicity, that there's no longer a dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. No longer is there a single cultural expression embodied by the Jewish nation that is expressive of, 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 of God's 
people of God's heart. All now in Christ, in his incarnation, are welcomed into the family of God. Why? Because Jesus has made a new humanity. And in that new humanity, here's the cool thing. All the cultures are welcome. We're made one in Jesus, but it's not just a melting pot where all the distinctions disappear. No, within the new humanity, all of us actually retain our cultural characteristics, our cultural distinctives. That's what we see in Revelation in heaven, all the tribes and tongues and nations worshiping God. It's it's not that they've disappeared. It's that they're there, but they're now part of a new humanity. And so here's how we can sum this up. Christ has removed the division between sacred and secular peoples. So that is pretty good news in this passage for us. And you might be wondering, what exactly is controversial about this? If the message is called the controversy of Christmas, or the Brits would say the controversy of Christmas, how, what does this even have to do with Christmas? What does it have to do with us? Well, what you see is when you look at the history of the church, when you look at the book of Acts even, you find out that it was this very thing that was the first point of tension in the early church. This was the very first great controversy in the church. You can read it in Acts chapter 10. Peter, the apostle, he goes to the house of a a Gentile named Cornelius, and he goes up to the roof, and God gives him, he puts him into a trance because he's hungry. You know, we've all been there, right? And judging from your faces, some of you are there right now (laughs) thinking about lunch, you know. But God puts, puts Peter into a trance, and he gives him a vision, and in the vision, this, this blanket full of all these forbidden, non-kosher foods come down, and it says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, no, 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 no. I've never touched anything common or unclean. And God says, what I have called common, sorry, what, what God has called clean, do not call unclean. All right. So God gives him a vision of food, but when Peter descends from the roof and he goes down to talk to Cornelius and his family, Peter says it's a vision about people. Listen to what he does. When Peter interprets his own vision, he says, God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So God gives him a vision of food, and Peter says this is a vision about clean and unclean people. And the reason is food, our practice regarding food is one of the most intimate details of a person's culture, right? You can tell so much about the the background of a person and their, their, their cultural identity from how and what they eat, right? And so this is a symbol, God's showing a symbol of the peoples of the world by the culture expressed in food. And so Peter says, all these peoples represented in their cultural practices are no longer unclean. They're no longer unclean. They're welcomed into the family of God. And so you fast forward to Acts 15 and we find out that this was not a message that everyone particularly liked. It says some men men came down from Judea and they were teaching the brothers that unless you're circumcised according to the, the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And so this is the issue that led to the very first church council 
the Council of Jerusalem, Acts 15, and then you, you see this, you see how controversial it was by the fact that Paul touches on it in virtually all of his letters. Almost all the letters of Paul have a chapter or so about this very issue, and he's got a whole book basically on it. The, the letter to the Galatians is all about this. And the, the, here's the issue. The central issue was, if a person has to follow the ceremonial law to be saved— What that means is the only appropriate cultural expression for a Christian is Jewish culture. If that's true, what follows is the cultural practices of all the other nations are unclean, they're evil, in other words, and they should be abandoned in order to follow Jesus. And we find out that this was, this was a very attractive or, or, or kind of, it was, it was a difficult issue because even Peter, the one who had the vision in Acts 10, we find out later that even Peter himself began to fall back into this way of thinking. And Paul had to call him out publicly on it, right? We read about that in, in the book of Galatians. So what, why is this such a big deal, you know? Well, what Paul and the, the, the Jerusalem council agreed on, what they said is that this is not just insensitivity. What they said is, if you go down this line, this is actually a denial of the gospel. This is actually heresy. That's why they took it so seriously. That's what the Jerusalem council ended up declaring. That's what Paul argues at length in his letters. And this is what they said. A person does not need to adopt the ceremonial law. In other words, the trappings of a Jewish cultural expression in order to be saved. Why? Because there is no longer a culture that is unclean. The incarnation has made them clean. And so... Am I saying that all cultures, all human cultures are equally valid? Well, in one sense, absolutely, affirmatively, yes. Because the message of the uh, the incarnation and the gospel is that the, the, the message of salvation is no longer contained to one culture. It cannot be constrained to any one culture or cultural expression. It transcends all of them. And yet, at the same time, what we see is the gospel places constraints. It places requirements on every human culture, including whatever your culture may be. And so it transcends every culture, but it also constrains every culture because what the the council said, what Paul says is that every culture has to avoid the, the, the things that lead to idolatry. So they, 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 they point out idolatry, they point out sexual immorality as things that no matter what culture you're from, you must avoid because they're going to take you away from this message of the gospel. And so here's how you can sum it up. The gospel transcends and transforms every human culture. So it's not just that every human culture is just wonderful and perfect exactly as it is and you shouldn't tell anything because that's, that's you know, co- cultural colonialism, which absolutely exists and is a great evil. But what I'm saying is the gospel, no matter what your culture is, if, if you're 
you know, European or African or Asian or, or South American, whatever it is, the gospel has a point of challenge for every single culture because every single culture has points at which it's worshiping something other than God. It's something it's raising up above the creator. Okay. What does this have to do with Christmas? You say, Ian, pastor's always trying to rope anything in to tie it to Christmas somehow, you know, how do you talk about something different every single year? Right? Well, I'm not reaching too far and I hope you can see why. And here's the thing. When it comes to Christmas, I don't know about you. If you're on social media at all, every single year, increasingly every year, I'd say around Christmas, my social media gets flooded with video after video and article after article about someone who has uncovered the secret hidden truth about Christmas. Christmas is actually a pagan holiday, right? I I don't know. Does anyone get these videos or it's just me and like the weird people I follow? (laughs) It's just me, I guess. Well, here's what they say. Christmas is nothing but a pagan holiday. Everything about it, the story, the symbolism, the traditions, all of it has its roots in paganism. And what's interesting to me is when I look at who's putting out these videos, it's equally religious people and, you know, like secular skeptics, both putting out these videos to discredit Christmas, which is, raises an eyebrow to me anyway. But these are arguments that have been raging for centuries. So please don't go for the clickbait. No one has uncovered anything hidden all right? Just because the content creator was ignorant of it doesn't mean that it was hidden. <laughs> really, that's a good tip, teenagers, okay? But <laughs> this stuff's been around forever. There's nothing hidden about it. We may have forgotten certain things about it, but here's the thing. There's no need to shy away from the fact that a lot of the things that these people say and that they uncover has some historical legitimacy. A lot of it is pretty murky. It's unclear. The evidence isn't very good. But for instance, so Christians may or may not have been the first people to celebrate the birth of their God on on December 25th. We don't really know, but it's quite possible pagans were doing that beforehand. All right. It's quite possible Christians were not the first ones to hold a festival of light in the darkest time of year. Probably not. Probably was not Christians first to eat feasts at that time of year or to decorate their houses with evergreens or to picture benevolent spirits flying through the air distributing gifts. Actually, Christians, to begin with, did not celebrate birthdays at all. The Romans didn't celebrate birthdays. They celebrated death days. Really. Because they didn't really care what you, when you were born. They cared like what you did in your life. And so your death day was more important. Actually a cool perspective. But, so Christians didn't celebrate birthdays to begin with. And it's, it's, it's likely, again, we don't know for sure, but it's likely Jesus was born in spring, not even in winter. Because the sheep were out in the fields and they don't do that when it's freezing cold. But, you know, it's possible. We don't, we don't 100% know. But here's the thing, okay? Even more than that, some people point out that the, the nativity stories have these interesting overlaps with these other pagan myths. And so you'll come across these things. 
So what do we do with them? Is Christmas just thinly veiled paganism? And the church is deceiving people and pulling the wool over their eyes? Or, you know, is, is the story of the nativity just a rehashing of all these other ancient kind of fertility myths? So this is what this has to do with Christmas. All right? And I want to suggest that there's three approaches to this. There's the religious approach, the irreligious approach, and the gospel approach. All right? So let's look at the first two. And here's how I'd sum it up. For the first two approaches, the incarnation is too dirty for the religious and too glorious for the irreligious. All right, so what we see is that in the religious approach, you can't accept anything human, anything that you know is, you know, originates in human traditions. And so the result is to reject the Christmas of Christ because Christmas is, is pagan, all right? But When you go to the irreligious approach, the secular approach, you can't accept anything that claims to be of divine origin. And so what they do is they reject the Christ of Christmas. And so you can tell what's happening by paying close attention to what each side complains about. All right. So the religious side says Christmas has been invaded by the culture. And so we can only celebrate it if we purge the human elements of Christmas and we get, to, we get back to this pure spiritual kind of Christmas. Only when we have something truly divine, untainted by sinful humanity, can we celebrate it in good conscience. Now, on the other side, the, on, on the, the irreligious, the secular side, it says the opposite. Culture has been invaded by the Christians, And therefore, we can only celebrate these holidays when we purge the Christian elements from them and we get back to whatever was before that. And so the basic problem from the start for both sides is that the incarnation, which is the meaning of Christmas, is what Christmas is about. The incarnation, the idea that God would become a man, it's it's too dirty for the religious mind. To, to, to grasp. It's too earthy, too worldly. But it's too glorious for the secular mind to grasp. And so Christians bemoan the secularization of Christmas and society bemoans the Christianization of winter. One wants to make him completely merely like us and the other wants to make him completely unlike us. And so you either reject the glorious and get rid of the spiritual or you reject the the earthly, the, the dirty and get rid of the human. But like we saw in that first message of the series, and if you didn't hear it, you can go back and, and hear this in detail. We actually have to hold both of those things in tension. And that's what the gospel does. The gospel is a third approach to this problem. If we deny either the true humanity or the true divinity of Jesus in the incarnation, in Christmas, what happens is we end up with no good news at all. You don't get half, you get nothing. So here's what the gospel says. Only an incarnation of dirt and glory is worthy of celebration. The human and the divine in one. 
We have to affirm both the full humanity and the full divinity of Jesus, or the gospel is either, it's either irrelevant to us or it's powerless to change us. And so, Contrary to the irreligious approach, the incarnation is this, it's, it's this declaration that the material universe is not all that there is. There is more. Nature is not ultimate. And Christmas is the story of God, the creator, writing himself into the story, becoming one of us. But contrary to the religious mindset, the incarnation is also this radical affirmation of the physical that Christ humbled himself and took on humanity, took on death, and even, as scripture says, became sin for us. And so the gospel says heaven is good. Heaven is real. But it also says earth is God's creation, and it is good and real. And they were united in Christ, who was God and man in the flesh. And it actually tells us that both heaven and earth will be made new in him. They're being united. All things in heaven and earth are being united in him. That's what chapter one told us. So here's the thing. Here's what we see. Christ inhabited culture to redeem it. So this is all bringing me to what should our response be to what we know are human influences in the Christian tradition or, or these things that seem to be reflections of pagan myths in the nativity stories. Well, guys, I keep going back to C.S. Lewis. I have to, I really got to read more people. But he said, actually, if the incarnation is true, this is exactly what we should expect to see. All right? We should expect to see these human influences in these things. And rather than a cause of anxiety, actually, when you read Lewis's story, it was one of the essential things that actually convinced him that Christianity was true. His good friend, J.R.R. Tolkien, they took a walk and, and Tolkien said they were both lovers of, of pagan myths and mythology and all these things. And you can tell if you read their books, right? But, but Tolkien said, the Christian story is not just one myth among others. He says, the Christian story is myths become fact. Because where all the myths said sometime in some magical place, you know, separated from earth and time, this, this God was born and he did all these things. But no, here come a people who were, out of all the peoples of the world, the most culturally sealed off against the idea that, that a man could be God or a God could be man. And here they say, that in a particular time and place under a particular Roman emperor in a particular town during the time of a particular census, God became man. This is myth become fact. And so Jesus doesn't just echo the, 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 the myths of the dying God. He fulfills everything that was true in them. All that is good and true in human culture finds its expression and fulfillment in Christ because, as Paul says, he is uniting heaven and earth. And so the gospel is the, the true myth that all the other stories, even nature itself, was foreshadowing, was pointing forward to, was looking forward to its fulfillment. And so if that's true, then 
all the, the human cultural elements that we see in Christmas, they're, they're not, it's not only that they're not a threat, they're exactly what we should expect to see if the incarnation is actually true. So, I, I know for one or two of you, this may be the first time you're hearing some of this stuff. And, and I know because I remember that coming across these things can feel very unsettling. But what I want to tell you is the answer, it's not the religious impulse to try and get rid of anything that reeks of, of humanity. But it's also not the secular impulse to, to get rid of anything that reeks of divinity. The answer, the thing is, the reason those aren't the answers is that when you follow them, they quickly lead into absurdity, right? So if, you're, if you want to take the secular road, you very quickly find out that we can't help but live our lives based on things that are ultimately supernatural beliefs. We can't believe in things like goodness, truth, beauty, justice, all of these things, unless they're on the foundation of something very like what we call God. And so it only makes sense if there's a God. And so um, the religionist, on the other hand, on the other hand, it very quickly leads to an absurdity because you find out that when you try and get rid of anything human, there's, there's nothing left. <laughs> think about it. Even if you're really bothered by paganism, think about this. The New Testament, what language is it written in? Greek. Guess who invented Greek? A bunch of pagans. Yeah? And so th- that can't be the answer. Thankfully, it's not the answer. The answer is to live in light of the incarnation and apply the meaning of the incarnation to how we interact with the world and human culture. Why? Because the dividing wall has been broken down. There is no longer any division between sacred and secular. And so what we see in culture, the answer is not to just reject it, but neither is it just to simply affirm it all. Here's, here's I think, the approach in the incarnation is that in Christ, human culture is to be baptized. Now, like in baptism, the incarnation tells us that in Christ, God descended into creation in order to raise it up to new life in him. That's what happens in your baptism. It's what we say, you know, into death in, in Christ and then raised to new life in the resurrection. And so this is exactly, we have precedent for this because this is exactly what we see Jesus doing. It's exactly what we see Paul doing. Jesus quotes Greek proverbs. He, he echoes the teachings of pagan philosophers. You see Paul quoting verbatim pagan poets and philosophers. And why do they do those things? They, they quote them in order to teach truths. And what they do is they take those things and baptize them to new life in service to God. And so in the history of the church, that's what we see in, in, in every land where the gospel has, has gone. Faithful Christians have looked at the culture that they were entering, looked at the symbols, the meanings, the truths that were contained within that culture, and baptized them to new meaning in Christ, in the light of Christ. And so that's why in, in Europe, 
when the gospel entered into the lands of pagan Germanic peoples, what they did was they saw what was good and true in those cultures, and they didn't just reject them, they baptized them into new meaning. So for instance, hanging evergreens in your house. To pagans, this was something, of, it was a symbol of renewal, of life continuing through the cold of winter. But Christians come along and say, in Christ, they become a symbol of resurrection, of the promise of life eternal. That the truth that was contained within that symbol, it's been fulfilled in Christ. Candles, for instance, they may have represented the light, the, the, the hope of new light that was coming after the long winter. But in Christ, they represent the light of Jesus, the light that shone in the darkness and which the darkness has not overcome. And so I'm giving you two particular, you know, cultural symbols and references that pertain to European culture. And what I really want to stress is that if, you, if your culture, you know, historically, ethnically, is not European, then it's really important that you don't get caught up in those symbols. Because you don't have to adopt those symbols in order to celebrate Christmas. Because Christmas is not European any more than Jesus was European. Yeah? The gospel doesn't belong or it cannot be contained within European symbols. So I, I'll tell you... Quick story, I've never been more annoyed than going to South Africa at Christmas time. And you know, we're walking through the mall, and they've got all these evergreens and pine trees and holly hanging, you know, decorations everywhere. And it's completely out of place. Do you know why? Because they're in the southern hemisphere, and December is summer. It's like 100 degrees outside. And here they've got symbols of snow and, 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 and evergreens. They're symbols of Europe. And you know what that communicates to that culture? To become a Christian, you have to become culturally European. And that is a denial of the gospel, my friends. That's what scripture tells us. And so that's, that's inappropriate there. And I, I get it because they're, they're a multi-ethnic society, but, but it's so important because so many cultures have received the message from Christians unintentionally by, by missionaries and, and other things that, that you need to become like us culturally in order to be saved. And that's not true. Paul says that's a false gospel. Being faithful to the gospel in that culture would be to take whatever symbols, whatever cultural things somehow reflect the truth of Jesus and baptize them and use them to celebrate. And I think the great danger that we can often face is that we, it's so easy to take our own cultural expressions and turn them into an aspect of the gospel and turn them into something that someone must do in order to be saved, rather than letting the gospel baptize our cultural expressions. And so, I can sum this up here, that the incarnation provides wisdom for all these things, but it also takes wisdom to apply. And I'm going to finish up with this, that in, in the next message next Sunday, which will be our, our last 
Sunday service in in December. We're going to go into more of the application of this in chapters four to six, because that's what those chapters do, really. They're an application of everything that Paul's expounded on the meaning of the incarnation. But our takeaway for this morning is this, that the incarnation transforms how we interact with human culture. The incarnation transforms how we interact with human culture. We today, we don't actually operate in the same mentality and cultural separation as the nation of Israel did under the old covenant. There are no unclean peoples anymore. And so what that means is just because something is of pagan origins, it doesn't mean that we just need to reject it outright. And you know why that's true? (laughs) Because you are ultimately of pagan origins. Most of us probably. (laughs) And God did not avoid you. God did not reject you. He welcomed you in his kingdom, but he, but he also didn't just leave you that way. He says, no, you must be baptized. You must die to sin and be resurrected to new life in Christ. And so the gospel doesn't exclude any human culture, but it also doesn't lead it, leave any human culture untouched, unchanged. It's not about accepting sinful practices just because, oh, that's a cultural expression. It's about taking everything that's meaningful and true and consonant with the gospel within a culture and redirecting it back to its source. You can read this in Revelation 21, 24, where it says that, that all the kings of the earth, the, the nations will bring their glory in to the, to, to the king. All the nations will bring their glory. And it's talking about the, the highest heights of those nations' cultural expressions, their cultural products will be brought in to glorify God at the end of time. So, 18 years later, this is my response to that friend in the car ride who told me my music was of the devil. I'm not bitter, guys. It's okay. I'm really not. But, but here's what I've come to realize. God created sound. Okay? He created, he actually told humanity to create culture. So culture in itself is good. It's just this, it's been directed towards false idols. And so I choose, and we must all choose, to take the forms, the symbols, the expressions of our own cultures and the cultures that we love and baptize them into new meaning in Christ. The incarnation gives us that mandate to take the symbols of cultures and show everyone how they point beyond themselves to fulfillment in Jesus. And so because of the incarnation, we can appreciate beauty, we can appreciate truth and goodness wherever we find it, even in music that's created by non-Christians or other art forms, whatever it is, because by the incarnation, I can affirm what is true and good and beautiful in those things. But the incarnation also gives me the tool to recognize what is maybe dehumanizing or idolatrous within those things. And so the incarnation is my, is my plumb line. 
And so it provokes all of us to think for ourselves, I think for our cultures, for our families, what are the practices, what are the assumptions of our cultures that we've either simply rejected or simply accepted, but which by the incarnation Jesus wants us to baptize So I want to end here by reading you Paul's exhortation on this point from Colossians 2.8. And then we'll, we'll bring our service to a close. And Mukunji is live with us right now, so we'll, we'll bring all this to a close as well. But here's what Paul says to the church and to us in Colossians. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath or maybe a Christmas. And he says, these are the shadows of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. These are shadows of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Would you stand with me as we close and I pray? And there's good news in what I just read there, that if you're here and you've never given your life to Jesus, it says that even when you're dead in sin and with nowhere to go, Jesus took all of that And he nailed it to the cross. He died for you so that you could have a brand new life and resurrection in him. And if that's you this morning, you can come to him and say, Jesus, I'm so sorry for how I've lived my life apart from you. Thank you that you died for me. You love me. I want to live for you. Please give me your Holy Spirit. Make me a new person. Just have a conversation with him. And you can do that right now. You can do that when you're on your own, later at home, whenever. But when you do, you're entering a family and you're not designed to do it alone. So tell somebody. Tell me, tell Mike if you're online. Pastor Mike is is hosting you online. But come share that. And why don't we pray together as we close our service. Hmm. Father God, we thank you for this incredible truth that we celebrate at Christmas. God, that in your son, you became man so that we could become sons of God. Fill us with awe in the face of that mystery. Lord, and I pray that the the truth of the incarnation and the fact that you have removed the division, that there is no sacred and secular peoples, 
Lord, would it transform how we interact, not only with our own culture, but every culture around the world. Help us to take the things that we so often take for granted, that we either accept, Lord, or we just totally reject. Help us to see a new way by your incarnation to baptize all creation into new meaning in the light of what you've done for us. We thank you, Jesus. And we worship you this Advent and this Christmas. Amen. Amen. So we've run a few minutes over today, and I'm, I'm just going to bless you and release you in the love of God and the, the, the grace of Jesus and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Be blessed and fill your hearts with hope and joy this Advent. Amen. Thank you for listening to the NC4 Podcast. For more info, visit our website at nc4.org. We believe in the power of a connected life. If you prayed to give your life to Jesus today, we'd love to help you walk it out together. Just text the word JESUS to 610-816-6062.